Hello, and welcome to Linux Action News, episode 128, recorded on October 20th, 2019. I'm Chris. And I'm Drew. Hello, Drew. Good to be connected with you. Joe is away at OggCamp this week. He'll be back next week, and Drew's filling in. And Drew, we start off with a huge new release from Canonical. Ubuntu 19.10 is out. Yeah, and it's pretty great, too. I've been using it for the past week or so in the beta, and really, this is just a super solid release. I am astounded by how polished everything is, even when it was in beta. Gnome Shell has reached just a new level of performance, and uh, 1910's one of the first distros out of the gate to showcase that. But also, you have your official flavors this release that are really looking good. One of my favorites, Ubuntu Mate 19.10, Goes up to the Mate desktop 1.22.2. Evolution replaces Thunderbird. MPV comes in to replace VLC. And there's a new updated Brisk menu as well. But Joe's favorite, Zubuntu, also gets a great update. Budgie also, Kubuntu. All around, it's looking really great for the flavors and for the main distro. Because really, in a sense, it's, it's getting everything positioned and ready for 2004, the next big LTS. Well, yeah, they're getting everything all polished up and ready for their long-term support release and is going to have at least five years of support. So you want to make sure that everything that goes into it is going to be rock solid because with the exception of adding in backport PPAs, that's going to be what they're going to be running for at least five years. Yeah, and perhaps even longer with extended support could be up to a decade in some cases. The most notable new feature in 1910 is obviously support for ZFS on root. It's a checkbox in the graphical installer. It is um, heavily couched as experimental in all caps in the installer. So they, they really want you to know that you are, you are taking your data into your own hands when you try it. But under the hood, they're working on some really sophisticated layout options that, as you would expect, accommodate not just the desktop, but also different kinds of server deployments, some that are automated, that are clustered, as well as putting a layer in there called ZSys, which will take care of a few of the fundamentals and works with things like a patched version of Grub that allow you to boot directly from ZFS on your root partition. But even further from that down the road, you may be able to select snapshots of your system like you currently select kernels after you do an update. Something goes wrong, you reboot, select a two-hour earlier snapshot, everything's right back to where it was. Right, and this is a feature that they are trying to borrow from the BSD world, something called boot environments, where you literally select the snapshot that ZFS took prior to you doing some crazy system upgrade or really just anything that could be a breaking change and allows you to just essentially roll back to the snapshot that you had before. It's a really good technology, and I'm really looking forward to them integrating that into the system. I think it's going to be a game changer for Ubuntu down the line. Well, the idea would be that when 2004 ships, things like kernel updates and major system updates are no longer going to take your system out. It's going to make that much safer in an enterprise environment to deploy those updates. So there's, there's a lot of really important things there. But there's so many other benefits, like really good file system compression that can actually improve boot time and file read access, incredible data management options. Um, I couldn't do it proper justice, but Jim Salter does in TechSnap 414. 
go to techsnap.systems slash 414 and listen to Rooting for ZFS. I think one of my favorite moments in that episode was when Jim explained how snapshots work in a way that is so totally understandable. And it really clicked in my head why it doesn't consume tons and tons of disk space and why in some circumstances a snapshot can happen so quickly and how you really could just make it part of a package update script. Uh, so it's such a great episode. TechSnap.System slash 414. Once you get 1910 installed, it is important to go ahead and do a full upgrade because there is an important kernel fix that was released after those images were spun. Yeah, it's an embarrassing bug, too, because it reminds me of a bug on Windows way back in the day where you could just blue screen a Windows system by sending it some packets of data. This is on that level. And it took a little while for people to catch on to this bug because initially it was reported as a WireGuard bug. And um, then we came to realize it's actually a kernel bug in the IPv6 stack. And yeah, it's an issue. It's worth upgrading because people can just crash your machine. Yeah, definitely. You want to keep those machines nice and safe. We gave our first impressions in Linux Unplugged last week. And since then, we've been benchmarking a ZFS 1910 system versus an extended 4 1910 system and how it performs in low memory conditions and just on like an average SSD, not like a super nice, crazy MVNE, but we went and got like an Evo drive that we've had for a couple of years. And in that batch of testing, one of the things I've discovered is that Canonical did spin an image for the Raspberry Pi 4, a 32-bit and a 64-bit. As we record, the 64-bit version has an issue with, uh, well, USB devices don't work, but it's reported and it's in their bug tracker. 32-bit, from my testing, does not suffer. So the 32-bit image, you put that on a Raspberry Pi 4, and you've got 1910 running on this tiny little ARM board. And that's going to be a really interesting story as well as 2004 comes out, and we have a lot more types of ARM devices on the market, including the Pi 4, but also including Amazon's new bare metal ARM instances. Yeah, this looks really cool. They're calling it the A1 family, and it is powered by Graviton processors. I love these names, Drew. <laughs> I know, right? I mean, a Graviton processor? That sounds like something that would be in Star Trek. Yeah, it totally does. Amazon is saying that it's a great fit for scale-out workloads, including web front-ends, containerized microservices, or caching fleets. Right. And in some workloads, they say you'll get a 45% cost savings because they're running these machines for less money. And for the right applications, it, it could make a lot of sense, including developers who are starting development on ARM can now move that ARM code up to machines running on EC2. This is a pretty big deal when Amazon starts doing this because it's one thing when, you know, Joe's hosting says, oh, by the way, I have ARM servers, but for Amazon to put this out in AWS where you can spin it up in minutes, this is a big boost for ARM. Right. When you are on EC2, you're also part of their entire stack of their monitoring and their messaging, their entire ecosystem. And the thing that's nice about having this on Metal is you run your own distro. And they write even in their announcement about it, just run a distribution like Ubuntu, Red Hat, Enterprise Linux, SUSE Linux, Enterprise Server, or Debian. And of course, Amazon's Linux 2 is available as well. And you tie that in with their whole orchestration and management platform. And if you're a shop, there's a lot of them out there these days that has nearly their entire data center on Amazon. This is just now one more system you can deploy. And uh, I think it's going to be a big boom for ARM code on Linux as well, which is really still not quite up to parity with the x86 counterpart. 
That's true, but changes are coming, and Docker has announced support for ARM-based architectures with their Docker Enterprise Edition. So while it feels like ARM support has been growing slowly, it is really starting to get there. And I think the future holds uh, just a world of possibilities for ARM. Yeah, imagine like the edge network stuff. A lot of enterprise-grade applications that are just doing a couple of things here and there, and they don't need an entire stack. But that hasn't necessarily translated to big profits for IBM in the enterprise. In fact, IBM has missed their estimates, even as Red Hat was added, didn't really offset the declines. Their total revenue was down 3.9% from a year earlier. Analysts had forecast $18.2 billion, and IBM got close, but just missed it. And um, doesn't really seem like Red Hat made a huge difference, does it? No, it doesn't. But I kind of have to wonder, how quickly did they expect the Red Hat purchase to really change things and turn it around at IBM? These kinds of acquisitions are big business, and they do take time to really start taking effect. Absolutely. In fact, in a way, like they should be getting a pat on the back for it not being worse during a merger. Like everything's crazy. You know, people are figuring out their stuff. I mean, I, I can only imagine our merger had lots of little details we had to sort out, and we were a tiny little company, and this is Red Hat. There's so many things they have to sort. There's so many additional meetings, the cognitive overhead of a merger at, a, at this scale is massive. And so, I mean, in, in one way, you could spin this and say, I'm surprised that it, they weren't much worse. But I think it does also represent what kind of a small impact Red Hat's revenues make to IBM's bottom line, because this is really the first time we've seen Red Hat included in the results since the 2018 purchase. So it's like we see the first results of this in this quarter, and it's kind of, well, it's nothing yet. It really is nothing yet. But I think you're right. Time will tell, won't it? It will. And to be fair, Red Hat's revenue was up from what it was projected at this year. Realistically, I think that the Red Hat merger is showing promise. I think we just need to give it a little more time. Yeah. And in fact, Chief Financial Officer Jim Cavanaugh said in an interview that he expects IBM will be back to a sustained level of revenue growth in 2020. Yeah, look, we, we love to give IBM a hard time a little bit because they're sort of the suits. But there's other factors here that are maybe things that we don't track as clearly. And that's things like foreign currency and how the shifts in the foreign currency markets can just affect IBM's overall results. Or their global IT company starts having poor performance in Ireland for the last few quarters. And it has impacted their results, and none of it has anything to do with Red Hat or what their success is in the cloud. Absolutely. And you also have to take into account that IBM is massive. They have all kinds of departments doing all kinds of different things. And if any one of them underperforms from what they were projected, that does affect the total company's bottom line. <laughs> you know, Drew, when you say all that global markets and currencies and all of this, it man, it really strikes me how far open source software has come. Like it's powering massive, massive businesses now. And time really does tell all stories. So we'll see where this goes. And now we have an update with Samsung's grand attempt to put Linux on DeX. And it's not good. Yeah, bad news coming from Samsung. They sent out an email to all of the Linux for DeX beta participants saying that they are ending support for Linux on DeX. Now, if you're listening, you're going, what the heck is DeX, guys? Well, this debuted back in 2017 with the Samsung Galaxy S8. It let you get a desktop mode UI when you put it in their special DeX station, 
which had connectors on the back of it. And then later, with the launch of the Galaxy Note 9, they made it work with any HDMI to USB-C type cable, which meant you didn't need the dock anymore. And they also started testing Linux on decks, which enabled the user to get a full-fledged Linux desktop running on the smartphone in DeX mode. Specifically, Linux on DeX supported um, a uh, modified Ubuntu 16.04 LTS for ARM64. Yeah, and it looks like that program is going away with Android 10. They have noted that Linux on DeX will not be supported on Android 10 beta. Once you update your device to Android OS 10, you will not be able to perform a version rollback to Android Pi. If you decide to update your device to Android 10 beta, we recommend backing up before updating. Yeah, this is uh, not going to be a thing anymore. They decided not to graduate it to a product. You know, they tried it out as a beta, and they said, uh, no, we're not going to do it. To be honest, I never really saw the appeal. I mean, if you look at me, I might be the perfect ideal candidate to buy something like this. Like, I like getting me a fancy smartphone. I love the idea of a, of a mobile usable workstation that's in my pocket. I'd be willing to invest in a dock. I mean, hell, I bought Thunderbolt docks. I'll buy a Dex dock even if I had to, or a USB-C to HDMI cable with a Bluetooth keyboard. I'll, I'd do that, but I, I think just instinctively I knew it was never really going to be up to my expectations and performance. And I've come to uh, a new a new place with how I use my mobile devices and how I use my desktops and how I divvy up those tasks, and I'm pretty comfortable with it. I'm kind of of two minds here. I think it's a really great idea. The whole idea of convergence, of being able to walk around with your computer on your cell phone, you plug it into a workstation, and all of a sudden you've got your desktop. So you could travel from home to the office and have the same computer without having to lug around a laptop or anything like that. It's a really cool idea, but I think we also have to recognize that it's 2019 now and almost 2020, and more and more people are doing more stuff on mobile. But the mobile device's battery lives haven't significantly improved. The OSs still aren't really quite fast enough. Like You don't have enough horsepower to use it as a desktop. Apps that are designed for mobile use, like a banking app that's a mobile app, that, that makes sense. But hooking up to a whole screen, I just, I don't think it's there. I mean, do you really think it's you really think it is? Honestly, I don't think it's there now, but I think the potential to make something great out of it really would be there if we hadn't seen such a global shift towards mobile only computer over the last few years. Really, I think that's what's killing Linux on Dex and things like Ubuntu Touch, which had a very similar idea. But as we all know, that's one that we can say rest in peace to. <laughs> okay, I see what you're saying. You're saying mobile has gotten competent enough that you don't need to snap it into a desktop mode. That's right. I mean, just look at the success of you know, Chromebooks. They're not running full-on Linux, and granted, you can get Linux apps running on them, but for the most part, people are using them like bigger cell phones. What's funny about this is we're both skeptics, but for totally opposite reasons. See, my argument is the desktop has stayed competitive, has gotten better and faster. In fact, in a lot of ways, it's better than it's ever been. When you get a like a full Ryzen system, and uh, or even just a system with an AMD GPU, and you can run Wayland, and you have to you didn't have to install a single driver, and you get full 3D acceleration. It's really getting to be the next level now on the Linux desktop. It's it's better than it has been at any point in time that I've ever been doing this. And 
hardware is getting good again as well. And so are laptops. They're getting really competitive again. Intel and AMD are back at each other's throats again. Like I feel like the desktop and the laptop space is more competitive and has moved forward more in the last couple of years than it has in, in since mobile became a thing. And so in a sense, it hasn't stood still. It was just going slow for a little bit. Now it's in gear. And so I think the gap's getting wider again. And I think you're right about that. I just think that the train has left the station as far as being able to really capture, I don't want to say desktop usage. It's like that good enough usage, though, where it's like, it's fast enough, I can do everything I need usage. Yeah, absolutely. And for most people, mobile or mobile-like experiences are good enough. What do most people want? They want to check their email. They want to browse the web. It's the people like us, the people who like to mess with computers, who really love this stuff, right? Yeah. All right. I agree. And I and I think that's why Linux for Dex didn't quite click for me, because it was clearly going after the more advanced user being Linux and the fact that you had to go get this thing and install it on your phone and even know that it had this capability to begin with. All of those probably puts you in a more advanced category. And then when you get to that category, well, we got a whole heck of requirements. You know, we got a whole bunch of requirements. The first thing is somebody's going to want to put i3 on that thing and the packages wouldn't be available and they'd be out. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. But, you know, all is not lost. There is Maru OS still out there and they're still targeting convergence. So, you know, people who do still have that dream where you can walk around with your computer in your pocket and just connect it up to something and get going. It's not completely dead yet. Well, Drew, my dream is software distribution that's truly safe. Uh, we're not there yet. It looks like a crypto jacking worm was found inside images on Docker Hub. Yeah, this is bad news for Docker Hub and the Docker project at large. Having this kind of malware attack the system is not a good thing. Now, to their credit, I can't find any of these Docker images on Docker Hub anymore, so it does look like they've been pulled. But who knows if they've uploaded some other malicious images under some other name. So this Graboid malware works kind of interestingly and kind of wonky at the same time. It carries out its worm spreading and crypto jacking by randomly picking three targets on each run iteration, it installs the worm on the first target, it stops the miner on the second target, and it starts the miner on a third target. This procedure leads to a random kind of mining behavior, and if uh, a host is compromised, the malicious container doesn't necessarily start immediately. So you don't necessarily see anything at boot time that would draw your attention. The container runs for a little bit, um, and then... The other compromised hosts can randomly stop other mining processes. So essentially, the miner on every infected host is randomly controlled by all the other infected hosts. And Unit 42, the people who discovered the worm, said that they really can't determine why the miners are deployed and run and stopped so randomly. Is it just bad design or do they have some other goal that we don't necessarily understand yet? Palo Alto Networks has a great breakdown that we will have linked in the show notes at linuxactionnews.com slash 128. When you look at the overall scale of Docker Hub, this issue still kind of remains to be a little more on the theoretical edge. I know it's like, you know, nearly 10,000 image downloads have happened, so it's real, and that's a lot of people. But Docker image deployments are on the scale of millions, in some cases even billions. And just like in the AUR, there is the theoretical risk, which... There has been bad stuff in the AUR before. 
if you use the entire suite of tools around the software, including looking at how many other downloads or in this case, polls or looking at the comments or all the other attributes you can analyze like publishers, etc., you are able to build a more complete picture and uh, essentially get a better idea of if you can trust the author or not. And you combine that with industry best practices. And I, it just, just doesn't really feel like a huge issue to me. Um, it's not one that I worry about on my systems, but I'm also willing to put a few minutes of research into an image before I deploy it on a production system. Well, yeah, you absolutely have to if you want to stay secure. You can't just trust everything you see out there. You want to make sure that your images or software are coming from reputable sources at the very least. Well, let's talk about the hard time Google's been giving free software projects that are attempting to raise donations. Two fairly important projects were removed from the Play Store this week. We start with And OTP. And OTP was pulled from the Google Play Store by Google after they introduced a donation button. And it caused a bit of a stir. This is an open source project that is not necessarily wanting to charge for itself, but would like to allow people to give money to it. And Google says that's not okay. I also, I, I kind of don't like this because... In both circumstances, the one we're about to talk about and this one, these applications improve the Android ecosystem security. And OTP is a fabulous two-factor authentication app for Android, and it supports devices down to 4.4, which a lot of developers have abandoned at this point. And it's a solid implementation of a time-based one-time password or other systems as well. If you've got an HMAC-based one, you can just scan the QR code. It automatically will get all of that set up. It's a really nice user experience. And the developer is just trying to make it sustainable. I completely agree. I don't see anything wrong with having some kind of donation service within an app that just lets people give back to a project, especially one as beneficial as AndOTP or WireGuard, which was also removed from the Google Play Store for the same thing. This is really upsetting because, again, WireGuard is some really great software. Personally, one of my favorite open source projects in the last couple of years and a similar story here. They added a link to wireguard.com slash donations, which we should all go to now that Google has forced them to remove it. Just adding that link, which would open the user's web browser to do a donation, Google said was in violation of their payment policy in the Google Play Store. Yes, and both projects are back up on Google Play now that they've removed their donation links. But really, how bad is it to have a donation button. I mean, they're not forcing people to pay for the software. They're not doing anything other than just routing people to a website that asks for a little bit of money. It's really unfortunate, especially when you're just talking about a link that opens the web browser. I mean, for goodness sakes, the iOS version has it. It's nice and prominent with a little heart emoji in the settings screen. And you tap it, and it opens up a web browser to their donate page. iOS has it. <laughs> like we're, It feels like this should be a story about Apple, and here we're talking about Google. In my opinion, these actions have elevated F-Droid to a whole nother level of prominence in the open source community. Thank goodness we have another alternative, and one that is friendly to open source. Because during both of these pollings from the Play Store, F-Droid, of course, kept the apps with the donation links. 
Absolutely. And I personally think that it shows a lot of backwards thinking on the part of Google with more and more software going towards services like Patreon to support themselves. We really need to be helping these businesses generate revenue in ways that are friendly towards the open source community. The lead WireGuard developer, Jason Donenfield, commented, quote, we won't be making any similar changes unless we are certain that we won't be delisted again. Yeah, I couldn't see any way for them to survive if they're not in the Play Store. I mean, granted, the technology itself would survive in servers and desktops and iOS, but if people aren't able to take advantage of it on Android, they're going to go somewhere else. Yeah, they'll use something that's perhaps proprietary or it's uh, some weird implementation that spies on them. WireGuard is good, audited, free software that implements really good crypto and a great VPN technology. And I think as we start to see really solid commercial solutions wrapped around it, it's going to be a no-brainer. And eventually it'll be just a, a detail. You'll get an app that uses WireGuard and you'll just have the peace of mind of knowing that the underlying software is open source and has been reviewed and is continued to be reviewed. And I think that's the real long-term benefit that WireGuard offers even average users on Android. They may not even know they're using it, but they'll get something that's good, reliable, that supports a mobile connection way better than current VPNs do uh, with its super easy handling of getting disconnected and reconnected. It's just an up and down of an interface and it, it makes it so smooth. I could go on and on. Obviously, I love it. And I just think it's critically important that Google supports things like two-factor authentication and VPN technologies and pulling these two applications simply because they had links to donations. Well, it's, it's a clear step beyond what even Apple would do. And I, I just don't know where that leaves us because of the prominence of the Play Store. It leaves me uncomfortable. Well, when these types of stories break, we cover them in Linux headlines. Like both of these stories, you get the information and then you get the analysis here. LinuxHeadlines.show. Every weekday, a new episode in three minutes or less. And uh, Fridays with Drew. That's right. Quickly becoming one of my favorite shows. Yes. And also check out Choose Linux. Drew is one of three hosts on Choose Linux, choose-linux.show. You guys just released an episode on small board computers, which I have queued up for my drive home. Featuring special guest Cheese Bacon. Yeah, you got to catch that. And of course, get every single episode of this here show. Check out linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get new episodes. And if you want to get in touch with us, head over to linuxactionnews.com slash contact. Joe and I'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. I am at Chris LAS. And I'm at Drew of Doom. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next week. Next week.